for listening to the Double Dose Podcast with Dr. Trish and Jeff Todd. Welcome, everybody, to the new Double Dose Podcast, formerly Sore Sessions. Sorely. Sore Sessions. Sadly gone. And now (laughs) Double Dose has appeared in its place. And we're here today for the first episode of the Double Dose Podcast with our newfound friend with the great Dr. Christopher Reeves. Thank you. (laughs) Dr. Reeves is a board certified orthopedic spine surgeon uh, that works at Midwest Orthopedic Spine Specialist. Or Moss. Moss. His office is located in Chesterfield, 14825 North Outer 40. Sweet 310. Very nice. We thought the first episode of Double Dose should have um, a surgeon on to talk about something that comes up a lot in our clinical practice, which is back surgery. Specifically, low back surgery. Very common problem. We see a lot of it. And um, obviously, in the interventional pain world, our job is to try to keep people from surgery, but sometimes that's just not an option. And when it's not an option, they end up in the hands of Dr. Christopher Reeves. You jumped too far ahead. Let's learn a little bit about Dr. Reeves. So you have a great name. Thank you. The Superman Doctor. Yes. I'm sure you've never heard that. Um, I heard it a long time ago for the first time and decided I liked it. Um, That was before becoming a physician, but yeah. How did you decide to become a physician? As a young child, I've was drawn to medicine and there was a uh, show on TV a long time ago where they would show real live footage from open heart surgery or brain surgery. And uh, no one in my family could watch it. And I was like probably kindergarten age and I loved it. And so that kind of started that thought in my process, you know, thought in my head. And how did you pick spine? Cause I, you started off in orthopedic surgery. Correct. So I did, um, orthopedic surgery uh, residency at Michigan state and came out in practice. I was in Branson, Missouri and practiced for three years. And I almost did a spine fellowship during my residency. And then, uh, the practice I was going to join told me not to do spine and that if I did spine. That's all I would do. Cause everyone from 300 miles away would come to me and I wouldn't be able to do orthopedics. And so he was really pushing me not to do a spine fellowship. When I got there, within six months, he wanted to sell me the practice and leave town. So uh, I, I feel like he had different uh, motives when he told me that. So I almost did a spine fellowship, was always interested in it, and then uh, practiced for a few years. And then the hospital that I was working for at that time, first I came in private practice, and then he tried to pull a political uh, move at the hospital. He left suddenly and uh, I was told to join the hospital or leave town. So I joined the hospital, new grad, you know, and uh, practiced. And then about three years in, they wanted a spine surgeon. And I told them that I'd always been interested in doing spine. And so ended up leaving and doing a spine fellowship. So and I feel like I I got a lot of extra benefit out of my fellowship that way because I'd already practiced uh, orthopedics uh, for a while was um, pretty adept at a lot of different procedures. And so I felt like I was um, a pretty confident surgeon going into my fellowship. So that allowed me to get a lot more out of it. Do you miss general orthopedics? No, 
Um, good answer. I, I was very good at doing a lot of different things anyway. Uh, you know, I was the only fellowship trained surgeon in Branson, Missouri. So I got everything from revision hips to revision knees to total knees, total hips, all kinds of fracture care. Uh, but it's really nice to focus all of your skill, ability, and attention in on one uh, subset of problems. And I, I feel like the more repetition, the more volume you do in one particular setting, the better you get and the better you're at, at picking out the correct patient and diagnosing the patient properly. Because I really feel like that's the the key to being a successful surgeon, you got to be good at what you do, but you also have to pick the right people. 100% agree. In fact, I counsel patients that way. Don't go to a, a surgeon who does 5 million things because they're not used to dealing with that one time when things don't go perfectly because they haven't experienced it. Like the one, the surgeons who practice and repeatedly do the same thing over and over. So I agree. I think in the beginning of your career, it's probably better to do everything um, just to gain the confidence and the skill and the, the 3D thought. Um, but then after a while. The patient doesn't want that that ex inexperienced. Correct. Correct. But I think it helps a surgeon build his experience. I agree. I agree. And then once you achieve that level where you could just focus in on spine, I think you should. So now your practice is all spine, but you do both cervical and lumbar spine surgery, correct? And thoracic, but it's just not that common. And then one of the unique things about your background is that you have a lot of heavy experience in minimally invasive spine treatment. What yeah, does so, that mean? <laughs> minimally invasive, a lot of people think it just means small incision, which it, it kind of does, but it's, it's, it's more than that. I mean, a smaller incision does lead to less pain, less bleeding. Um, but it's, it's, it's more of a mindset. It's not exposing the entire spine to do an area that's only an inch in size. And a lot of spine surgeons in the Midwest still do everything open. And when you open up a back for say, let's just compare a, like a simple, like two level, uh, laminotomy. So most guys will open that up either on one side or both sides of the spinous process, most of the time both. So the, uh, the spinous process is the bone that That little can feel. that you can feel when you run your thumb down your back. And the lamina is just part of that bone that comes off. The that. little flatter area that's lower down. And that's the part we all remove to try to create uh, more room for the nerves to pass by. But often they will kind of skeletonize or just remove all the muscle off the bone of the back to be able to see everything uh, with their eyes. And I leave all that muscle intact and just divide it bluntly with, um, it's kind of like taking, it's a series of dilators. It's kind of like taking a number two pencil and pushing it through a stake. The stake doesn't get damaged. It just develops a hole in that muscle. And that's basically what I do to a back is I'll put dilators through that the muscle is maintained and then I'll put a tube down that becomes a working channel from your skin to your bone. I look down that with a high powered microscope and do all the work that you would do normally open, except I preserve all the muscle. I preserve the innervation. And the other thing that people don't talk about are the tension band, you know, the interspinous, supraspinous ligaments, which are just over the spinous process. 
um, a lot of guys uh, will sacrifice that in their procedures. And I think that's a huge mistake. Uh, tension bands in orthopedics are very important. And so you'll have this back surgery uh, that looks good on imaging, yet the patient still has continued pain. And I think a lot of it has to do with de-innervation of the muscles, uh, the, you know, the spinal muscles that help support our spine. If you do the case open, you'll lose about half that muscle to fat on MRI if you look at someone that's had an open back. And whereas you look at my MRIs on my post-operative patients, you'll have a hard time even distinguishing any fat change in the muscle, and you'll have a hard time even seeing where you went in. So I think that makes a big difference uh, in the laminotomy, but especially in the fusion patients. Uh, the patients that require fusion, a lot of guys in the Midwest do a full open procedure and they remove a lot of bone. And I think all those structures are very important and should be left alone. And the more you remove of them, the more the patient has chronic pain. So are your operative times longer with your approach? Um, no, actually, they're probably equal or less than an open surgeon, but I've done thousands. What about recovery times? Do you improve those by maintaining those essential structures? Yeah, I believe my recovery, I think patients are more comfortable at earlier stages of their recovery. If we're talking fusion, a minimally invasive fusion, the fusion doesn't happen any earlier. It's just along the way, the patient is more functional and has less pain than the open counterpart. Can you do multiple levels in a minimally invasive fusion surgery? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've even done, uh, now this was during my fellowship, we would do scully corrections, minimally invasive, and those are quite challenging, but uh, I used to do those. Nowadays, anything that's scoliosis or deformity related, I send to a scoliosis surgeon because again, you want a guy that that's all he does. Let's talk about one of the topics that comes up quite a bit is when should people have back surgery? I mean, we manage people for really long periods of time. We manage their pain with injections or medications or activity modification. And But when is it enough is enough? And hey, back surgery is might not be what you want, but it's what you got at this point. Well, I, I think you have to have the pathology that I know I can improve upon. So when I see a patient, if they have uh, some area that's pushing on the nerves and it may even be a smaller uh, problem, but they've had the conservative treatment of anti-inflammatories, pain management with injections, have done their physical therapy and they're getting diminishing returns over time and they're getting to the point that they don't feel like they can, they want to live with that pain, then that patient's ready for surgery. Uh, you always have to do your non-operative stuff first to kind of, because there's a lot of patients that have pretty bad looking images that get better with a little bit of physical therapy or a couple shots by Dr. Herford will, will take care of that problem. And, it, and if that's all it takes, you don't want spine surgery. That is a, that's a topic or a discussion point in the office that takes a lot of patients. Sometimes I don't know if they believe us at first when we, we constantly say, look, you treat people, not pictures, because they get these reports that say all these really horrific things on them. But we say, hey, listen, yeah, you may have this disc herniation. They go, well, that, that herniation, I've got to get that fixed. And we're constantly telling them like, well, manage your symptoms. Let's see what your symptoms say, because horrible herniation, but no pain. What, what, what do you gain from having plates and screws in your back? 
um, sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will not operate on a patient that doesn't have enough symptoms. You know, if, if their symptoms are very minor or they don't have a whole lot of uh, a high level of pain, they rate their pain as a two, I don't consider that a surgical patient. You have to have enough pain that makes it worth having the procedure because I, I can't, I, I'm not a, um, you know, I, I'm not a healer. You know, I, I can't make someone whole 100%. You can improve them upon their pain. You can reduce it significantly, but you can't get rid of it because there's too many underlying conditions. There's too much arthritis. There's too, uh, uh, you know, patient has, you know, I mean, most of us are not perfect physical specimens, right? We, Speak we don't, for yourself. Uh, we don't eat. We don't eat how we should. We don't exercise like we should. Yeah, exactly. And so smokers, smokers, smokers. Yeah, I can't. Poor people. Um, they need to quit. Do you not operate on patients who are smokers if, if it's elective? If it's a big fusion procedure, then I won't. Um, uh, or I at least counsel them about serious reduction. If it's um, a disc replacement or microdiscectomy, I tell them that they need to quit, but I'll continue and proceed. That brings up a good topic. You mentioned disc replacements. So let's touch on the, what are the basic types of back surgery? Because I think that a lot of people are familiar with, I mean, I would probably say the big two are people, a lot of people have heard microdiscectomy, and then a lot of people are familiar with fusion, but there's other things out there for different indications, correct? Correct. So I do do a lot of microdiscectomy work through a tubular retractor, which um, I, I, I probably pull that option more than most surgeons. Uh, I have tremendous experience in minimally invasive. I've done over 3,000 procedures. And so even if I have to fuse a patient, I try to leave all the soft tissue envelope as, as little disrupted as possible. I don't try to make them where I look completely normal uh, postoperatively uh, at the sacrifice of soft tissue. Um, and a lot of surgeons do that. Um, the other, the other options are disc arthroplasty, uh, both cervical and lumbar. Cervical is by far the more common uh, procedure in, in, in my practice at this point over lumbar. Lumbar is just hard because you have the patient's whole body weight going through. It's a much more trying uh, environment, more difficult environment than the cervical. Cervical spine, you're holding up a 10-pound bowling ball. Um, the lumbar, head. Yes, the head. And uh, uh, lumbar spine, you're holding up your whole body. So the forces there are quite dramatic. So what Dr. Reeves is referring to is with the artificial disc replacements or arthroplasties, you go from the front of the body. So you have to open the belly up and approach it that way. And not all spine surgeries are done from the front which is another um, question we get asked all the time. Correct. I do them from the front, the side, and the back. I've, I've kind of trained in all. For lumbar disc replacement, it is an anterior approach only. There, um, uh, During my fellowship, I was trained at Beverly Hills Spine Group in uh, Beverly Hills, California. I had an excellent training, uh, at unusual training in that uh, I worked with uh, highly uh, renowned uh, orthopedic and neurosurgery spine surgeons. So it was a really cool environment. We did a lot of um, uh, clinical trials there. So I saw a lot of things that still haven't even made it to market. And my fellowship was in 07. So uh, 
was part of a facet replacement system that was pedicle based, which was really cool. Uh, and the facets are the joints that um, help kind of keep. Yeah, the and I, I feel like together. facet disease is the one thing that we haven't really figured out surgically at all. And I think a lot of patients suffer from facet disease, yet we don't really have any surgical options for facet disease other than fusion. And they did that in the 90s, and that didn't work out too good. Yeah, so that brings to an interesting topic is that facet disease typically presents as what we call axial back pain or pain in the back versus pain in the legs or in the feet. And uh, traditionally, axial back pain has been um, one of those things when thinking about surgery, axial back pain is a little bit different indication or surgery is different for axial back pain than it is say for leg symptoms. Is that safe to yeah, say? So in, in any patient, you have to really figure out what is their pain generator? Where's their pain coming from? Is it coming from the disc itself? Is it coming from the disc herniation pushing on a nerve? Is it coming from the facet joint or is it a combination of all the above? Now, the easier patients are the patients that come in that have predominant leg symptoms. Um, most of the time, those patients are due to a disc herniation. And so it's from the disc putting pressure on the nerve. And then also your body's immune response to that disc being out of position. So... Um, those are the easy patients in, in my clinic. Those are almost always microdisectomy. Uh, it's the, the patient that has kind of the mixed or more back pain than leg pain where you have to kind of figure out where is this pain coming from? Is it coming from the facet joints or is it coming from the disc itself? Because the disc does have, and the annulus does have uh, innervation. And so degeneration there can lead to, um, uh, pain. And so you have to kind of figure out where is this pain coming from and then design the right procedure or recommend the right procedure to help that patient. So let's talk about that. If somebody has facet disease and the facets are the, on the back of the spine and they have disc problems, what approach are you usually typically? So if they have facet disease and the disc is a problem as well, then typically that's a fusion. And I typically do that with an anterior approach. Um, the anterior approach affords you the ability to put a very large cage in. Um, that way uh, you have a large footprint to achieve fusion. And so it's a combined anterior posterior procedure. I typically do those stage where the anterior portion is done one week. You stay overnight. The next morning, the patient goes home and then I finish up a week later with the posterior. And it's kind of like belt and suspenders. You're making sure that that segment's going to be taken care of. But I like to keep patients ambulatory throughout the whole process. And a lot of patients have a, you know, you have to kind of discuss it with them because they are so used to the one and done mentality. Uh, and I think that is okay, but sometimes if you take a smaller bite at the apple, you can keep the patient ambulatory. You don't knock them down so hard that they have to require such strong narcotics that it lowers your risk of blood clot pneumonia infection, and the patient is mobile throughout the whole process. Whereas if you took care of the anterior on one part of the procedure, flipped them over, and then did the posterior, I think that's really hard on a lot of patients. And I think you get a lot more complications uh, that way, at least in my opinion. How long are your recoveries for an anterior front approach and 
a posterior or back approach. So recovery is a weird word. I always say this. Like, I, I don't know what recovery means. Um, so let's say back to work or back to driving or right, those stages right. of recovery so, for your um, patients. Two weeks post-op, I'll let you drive. I think for the first two weeks, it's probably wise not to drive. And I always tell patients if they're taking a lot of narcotics, then they shouldn't be driving. They're an impaired driver. Um, so they're ambulatory the whole time. I never make a uh, patient bedridden. I think that's a bad idea. Uh, matter of fact, the more mobile we are, the better we do. But there's limits, you know, uh, no bending, lifting, or twisting until they fuse. And typically it takes five to six months to see a fusion. Do you brace your patients? I do for the, uh, especially in the beginning, to kind of slow them down and remind them. Uh, later in the process, uh, we can discontinue the brace, but a lot of patients like it at that point and still use it when they're, you know, uh, ambulating a lot or going to be doing a significant amount of work on their feet. And return to full activities. And I know this depends on the type of surgery. Depends on the type of surgery. So um, if I do a microdisectomy, generally 10 to 12 weeks, you're re released to do anything. Cervical disc replacement, three months, released to do anything. Um, lumbar, uh, fusion, it's, we have to see fusion. So typically it's six months before I'd be able to send you, uh, back to full duty. It kind of depends on what kind of work do you do? Uh, your line of work, I'd have you back to work in two to four weeks, but someone that has to, uh, do heavy lifting, we've got to make sure that the bones have grown together properly before we put that kind of stress through that fusion area. So we'll check that with a CT scan. And if that looks okay, then I don't just send you back. I do physical therapy for a little bit and then even some work conditioning, which is just longer, more intensive physical therapy to get the patient back up so they can be successful and return to work. Because anytime you've been off work for six months and you have to lift 50 pounds on a regular basis, that's not going to go well unless you get reconditioned. Do you have a hard and fast rule on your fusion patients and lifting restrictions? So some, some surgeons, if there's a posterior approach in particular, almost always plan on a specific weight restriction long-term. Like permanent? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any permanent restrictions on my patients once, uh, um, once they're fused. I return you back to full. I have several uh, patients um, that do very intensive labor, uh, have to lift over a hundred pounds that have returned to full duties. I like that approach. Um, it's interesting because you have your patients demonstrate that they're capable of doing whatever they need to do. And you've done it two ways with the physical therapy prescription and the CT scan that shows that bone is incorporated there. Do you worry that they may wear down adjacent segments? And that's the big concern with younger patients that once you fuse them, Will they need another fusion in the future? And do you increase that risk by having them just return to whatever normal activity or heavy lifting? So there's no data on this. Um, there's data that shows that it's some number between 20 and 30% over seven years can have adjacent level de uh, continued degeneration or significant degeneration. Um, there's no data that links what you do postoperatively. And I think a patient that's more active and more fulfilled in their life is going to be a more successful patient. And so restrictions not only 
I think doctors feel like they're protecting a patient when they do that, but they create a psychological issue. A lot of times these are men that have heavy labor jobs and have a lot of their self-worth wrapped up in that ability to do that. And if they can do it, I think it's better for them uh, to proceed with that line of work. Um, plus I don't, I don't just throw them back at it. I, I build them up to the point that they can do that line of work. And as long as we're not showing significant issues, I think it's better to return to a normal lifestyle for the patient, their own psychology. I don't give uh, limits on sports afterwards. Um, if they develop an issue, if they, if they have serial problems, then I think we would have to look at that. But on a one-time instance where I fix someone and um, I don't just kind of fix them, I make sure they're well fixed, then I'm absolutely fine with them returning to full activities. So I'm not a no doctor. I know there's a lot of them out there, but I'm not a no doctor. You mentioned one of the things that I think is a little bit different about spine surgery versus other surgeries, and that is you have to think a little bit about the uh, the other parts of the spine. Um, that's, you know, a lot of patients come in and they go, well, I don't want to do these shots because you're telling me these shots don't fix anything. You're just settling problems down. I just want to go get it fixed. And sometimes I'll look at patients and I'll say, well, sometimes that's easier said than done with the back versus Correct. a knee where. You well, even a knee, you don't really it. fix it, right? You just remove the part that's a problem. And that's exactly what we do in spine surgery as well. Uh, like in a knee, you get knee pain, you've torn a meniscus, they remove that part that's kind of like a hangnail getting stuck between the bones. That's essentially what we do in spine surgery. Whatever piece that's pushing out and pushing on the nerves and causing a problem, we remove. To remove it sometimes requires fusion where we grow the bones together. Other times it's just simply going, removing that little piece that's irritating the nerve, which is more the laminotomy microdisectomy. And then disc replacement kind of falls in there too. Lumbar, not as, not as common because it's a narrow focus, right? Lumbar disc replacement is a young uh, person's uh, surgery. You know, it's a patient that has purely degenerative disc disease, no facet arthritis, significant pain, has failed conservative measures. Discogram shows that they have a disc problem, uh, but they don't have any arthritis. That's a good lumbar disc replacement. I've done several uh, uh, quite a few of those, but there are much narrower focus. I'd be, I probably would be uh, pretty concerned about doing it. Someone that's a real heavy laborer as well. Um, heavy labor. I think I would prefer to fuse a patient like that. I've never ran into that exact, uh, patient, but I, I, I have done a, a gentleman that he's not quite back to full uh, duty now, but worked for a beer company. And uh, so he's offloading cases of beer and all that. And we don't have him there yet, but we're working on it. Yeah. Patients feel like they're going to get, like, we're going to fix it. Um, right. And, and you can't, you're not, we don't ever fix someone. We're not making it new like it was 10 years ago. There's, there's, that's not possible. Maybe in the future, maybe in the future with genetic engineering and all that, but we're a long ways away from that. There's no, I see on like little news clips over my phone that like, you know, you may not need surgery in the future. You'll just get a shot. Well, that that's possible. It's nowhere, anywhere in our near future. I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime personally. 
because orthopedics, whether it's spine or any other part of your body is a wear and tear. It's the brakes on your car. You know, they can't come up with brakes that last forever. Our bodies don't last forever. You get degeneration, things break down through wear and tear and they need to be fixed. So how we fix them in spine surgery is remove the part that's irritating the nerve, or we make the bones not move anymore because the disc itself or the facet and the disc are the pain generators. And so when that portion is held still by growing together, it helps alleviate their pain. Doesn't get rid of it, greatly reduces. But different than say a a knee replacement though, when you do a fusion, now that force is still in other parts of the spine because the force is still coming through the back. So movement's taking place, the levels above and Move, you move the levels below, which is a little bit different than, say, like a knee replacement where you just lop off the ends of the bones and throw them in a bucket, right? Well, sort of. That sounded so gross. Yeah. Just so, so, so knee replacements like knee resurfacing, basically. I yes. think people that think they kind better. of chunk off the whole end. It's mainly a resurfacing. It's more like a disc replacement, right? Um, but they still have uh, spine is just one segment. So the knee is like four or five and the foot and ankle is L5 S1 and the hip is L3, four. So um, yes, when you fuse one, the adjacent levels have to do more work and they have the same genetics that, that potentially led to some of the problem at, at the index level. Age, they still may smoke, smoke their level of conditioning is affected, which goes into how do you improve the outcomes for patients? So I, I think reason why my patients are do quite a bit better than others are I'm very respective of all of the dynamic stabilizers of the spine. And, and that's an unusual thought process for the Midwest. That's actually a kind of a physiatrist approach. I hate yeah. to share that with you. Yeah. Well, I'm an osteopath, so there's that. Oh, there you so, go. Um, we didn't even touch on your osteopath yeah. roots. Yeah, we need to do that because patients ask about that quite a bit. So um, the by maintaining all the muscle, you have your spine has uh, uh, dynamic and static stabilizers, right? The static are more the ligamentous complexes. I save those as well. And the, and the dynamic stabilizers, the muscles, I spare. Um, when you damage your muscle, if I damaged your quad where you lost half your quad, it turned to fat, you would limp the rest of your life and your leg would hurt the rest of your life. Your back's no different. Is it, is it harder to do it the way I do? Yes. Uh, you have to be trained in it. You have to do, you have to commit. A lot of guys say they're mainly invasive spine surgeons, but they do it 10% of the time. If that I'm a hundred percent, that's all I do. Cause I believe in it so strongly. So I think you mitigate some of the adjacent level issues when you help not destroy or damage the dynamic stabilizers and the static stabilizers of the spine. So by not taking out the spinous process, the interspinous ligament, supraspinous, by not deinnervating the muscles, I feel like there's less stress that's transferred to the next level. Of course, it's going to have to work harder because it doesn't have its friend one level down helping out, right? So it's going to have to do more. Um, but I don't think we see the advancement of degeneration as fast. Now, there's no, there's, I don't have any data to back that up, but over time, I will. That was a, 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 my next question. So, so I, I collect uh, uh, data as if we're doing a 
uh, clinical study on every single patient that I do. That way, when I see you and I tell you I have a dural tear rate of less than half a percent, it's not an estimate. It's a real number. Yeah. The dural tear is just the covering inside that spinal canal. Yeah. It's a spinal, it's the covering over the spinal cord or the spinal nerves. And it's a, a well, uh, well-known complication of spine surgery and the dural tear rates range between one and 10% in literature and um, mine is less than a half a percent. So things like that. I like to track that data so I can tell my patients real world um, their risks. But then also it helps me look at how patients are doing. And if all of a sudden a certain subset of patients are having a problem, I can drill down on that and see what changed. Osteopathic medical schools versus the traditional medical schools. So I was a non-traditional student in that uh, I had worked for a while. Um, what did you do? Uh, nothing, nothing glamorous. My dad was a carpet layer. I worked at a factory. I'm a blue collar kid and um, Thought I was going to be a millionaire by the time I could get out of college. So I had all sorts of uh, industrious ideas. Um, one was a mobile oil change service. You can cut this out. But uh, <laughs> I'm liking this because somehow we're going we're gonna to weep right into how you ended up in Beverly Hills, Mr. Blue Collar. Right. right. So, um, so I, I didn't go straight from high school to college to medical school. So I, I worked for a while and uh, decided I needed to go back to college. Went back to college, was serious about it. Uh, thought I was going to be an optometrist because I was working at an optical at LensCrafters. Um, I worked there through college, and I thought, well, I'll be an optometrist. Took uh, pre-optometry is what I was thinking, and I went and met with my counselor, and uh, they recommended pre-med because it looked better to get an optometry school. Um, I did really well in my classes. I really wanted to be a surgeon, but I thought that was pretty lofty goals, uh, for a guy that had not done well in the past and school and that kind of thing. So went to, um, did really well in college and applied to MD and did not get into school. Um, there was, it was during the, um, ER mania. And, uh, there was like over 10,000 applicants and I'd only applied to a few schools and I was kind of looking at my options and looked Wade going uh, outside the U S and one of my professors said he was shocked. I didn't get in and, um, asked me if I considered osteopathic medicine. I didn't know what it was. So we are a real doctor. So. He gave me a couple names and I went and met with them. And one was a family practice doctor and one was an uh, ophthalmologist. So like, wait, so I, I can become a doctor. I have different initials after my name, yet I still can do practice medicine. They're like, yes. And the, the first pass rate on the boards, if you went outside the U.S., was in the high 60s. First pass rate on the boards for osteopathic um students was in the 98, 99% range. So I'm like, well, clearly there's a difference in the education. And so, um, I decided to apply to DO schools and, um, cause at that point they really weren't looking at non-traditional students. If you had not 
gone straight from high school to college and had everything lined out, you were immediately kind of disqualified and kind of pulled out of the stack. And because I was a little older, I wasn't that much older. I was four years older than the average guy. But I've just been doing all the math with the things you've done in your life. And right now you're like 84. Right. So, um, so it just became a natural progression. And, uh, I interviewed at several of the schools. They all wanted me to come and I had excellent, uh, scores, excellent GPA. I just, uh, hadn't followed the traditional path. So you take all the same tests, you do all the same training you have. Matter of fact, a lot of the guys, I, I didn't go to Michigan state. I went to university of health sciences, Kansas city, which was an excellent school. They taught in the, Actually, my first two years, I went to Chicago, um, and then my parents got sick, and so I moved closer to home because um, they were having significant medical issues, and so I transferred to Kansas City, and uh, it was funny, the uh, Chicago schools considered themselves the Harvard of DO schools, so they said, we'll get you in Columbia, and I said, I don't, I don't care. I'm fine with being, I don't want to be the DO that transferred into an MD school. So I, I transferred to uh, University of Health Sciences for my last two years, which are mainly clinicals anyway, and um, did that, graduated, and then got my orthopedic residency at Michigan State. And the Michigan State residents, interesting, the, the, the med students there, the osteopaths, you take all the same classes, you just have one extra. So you have manipulation, which is like chiropractic manipulation of the spine. Uh, you're taught that as an osteopath. So you're taught to think of a more holistic approach towards patients and um, to think about the musculoskeletal system in a more holistic way and that different disease processes can have musculoskeletal presentations such as like gallbladder. Um, and um, of course there's, Within that training, there's people that think they can cure you with some manipulation of your spine, which uh, I don't believe in. But um, uh, I think it was an interesting uh, part of my education. I, I don't regret any of my path at all. Uh, it's been a little harder. You have to prove yourself a little more, but I have a problem with that. I like the whole person approach. Yeah, me too. Much more effective in, in seeing patients successful and what they're trying to accomplish, which is pain control. We're going back to doing something you love. And I think the osteopaths have had a significant impact in medicine because the allopaths have gone towards a more holistic teaching, training. And so I, I don't think there is currently there is as big a difference between allopathic medicine and osteopathic medicine as there was when I was coming through. Well, the residencies used to be off limits for a lot of the big fancy residencies, for lack of a better word, used to be off limits to like DO students, Absolutely. right? I interviewed at a couple. I tried to get in at KU because um, um, I had rotated through there and pushed pretty hard. And the younger allopathic or MD trainers were all about me. And the more senior guys uh, said, no, no osteopath. So I, I narrowly, I feel like I narrowly missed, I don't know, maybe they were just giving me lip service, but I feel like I narrowly missed a spot at KU. Um, but I don't, I don't know that I would take back my training. My training was incredible, uh, as an osteopath in Michigan, where there's a lot of osteopathic institutions. Uh, we had a, we were a level one trauma center when I started over time. It was not a level one. Um, 
but I was trained to operate right away. And if you had the skills, they would let you go as far as you could in procedure before they took it over. And so very early in my career, I was operating. And so by the time I graduated residency, I could do anything orthopedically without problem. Um, joint replacements, revision joints, I could do fresh out without any difficulty. The other thing that was interesting about osteopathic training is we got to do out rotations. And commonly when you're an MD, you're stuck at one institution, let's say, um, like Henry Ford system in Detroit, you have to stay in Henry Ford. You can't go anywhere else. Well, I could go anywhere I wanted as long as I could get someone to say they would allow me to participate in their program. So I did, you know, my pediatrics at children, children's mercy in Detroit. I did my trauma and, uh, uh, Las Vegas and a university medical center there. Um, and UMC, there was no orthopedic residence and, Las Vegas is a uniquely positioned trauma center and that there's no other trauma centers around for several hundred miles. So it was quite, uh, uh, it was a very busy environment. Yeah. And so I did more femoral nails and tibial nails uh, in a month there than most people would do in a year. And then Beverly Hills. And then you go from Branson. So I go to Branson and um, I grew up in Springfield, Missouri. So I went to Branson because I really wanted to be an independent physician. And then that quickly didn't go exactly how I had planned, but um, practiced for a while and then decide they decided they wanted a spine guy. And so we worked something out. And so I shut my practice down for a year and went to um, first I was accepted at uh, Cleveland Clinic of Florida. And the surgeon there, I really liked. He was an osteopath, Dr. Biscup. He, um, I was accepted there and that's where I was going. I rented a house in Weston, Florida. And then he got at odds with administration. And uh, literally a month before I was supposed to start my fellowship, he um, left. And they called me and said, you know, not to worry that they were hiring another spine surgeon um, and he was going to be there and uh, he was actually two years younger than me. So he's an inexperienced spine surgeon. So I was very concerned about doing that. I talked to one of my other friends, a fellow residents who was a spine surgeon. He's like, are you kidding me? You'll just push him out of the way and you'll, you'll do all the cases and it'll be great. And I'm like, well, I need, I really want mentorship as well, you know? Uh, I, I don't want to just do them. I want to be good at it. Everyone listening is now afraid of teaching hospitals and fellowship <laughs> programs. Um, I never did anything I couldn't do. I was always a confident uh, surgeon. And if I wasn't confident, I didn't proceed. Um, but so that, that kind of fell apart. And I had uh, talked about at, over the phone with Dr. Regan at Beverly Hills Spine Group, and he already had a fellow. Um, so he said he would take me as a second fellow. Um, but at this point, the Cleveland Clinic Florida <clears throat> deal had happened, and Brown University was also interested as well. Um, Brown was a level one trauma center, and I really didn't want it to be focused in trauma. I wanted to do adult degenerative disease. So I ended up calling up Dr. Regan and uh, Beverly Hills Spine Group, and 
his fellow, his wife, they were from Montana and she just didn't want to move to LA. She thought her kids would be damaged uh, by living on the West coast, which I think a lot of people empathize with. But anyway, um, so he backed out. So he didn't have a fellow at all. So he said, can you be here tomorrow? I'm like, no, I have surgery tomorrow. Um, so the following week I flew out, met him. And, uh, so I started my fellowship a month late, but I continued on a month longer. So, uh, ended up going out there training. It was a great experience. Dr. Regan was great. He's well known in the scoliosis world. He was at Texas back Institute, uh, prior to being, he was over the, uh, uh, orthopedic spine at uh, Cedar Sinai in Los Angeles. Uh, we operated there as well as Century City Doctors Hospital. And then I also worked with Todd Landman, who's a neurosurgeon well-known in disc arthroplasty. Um, he was one of my trainers. And then Carl Larason, who has St. Louis ties. Um, Carl is a neurosurgeon that uh, was at WashU and had left and was living the rough life in Malibu, California. And so I, uh, Carl was one of my trainers as well. And I really got exceptional training again. I felt like I've been very fortunate in all my training uh, choices because uh, I came out of my fellowship uh, well prepared to tackle even complex issues. To circle all the way back around, the bottom line is, is that back surgery is almost never the first line attack for back pain. Yeah, it's never. The only time it's a first line attack is if you have a profound problem that is a causing uh, severe motor changes or you can't control your bowel and bladder functions. Herford and I have an internal agreement. It's if we poop and pee on ourselves or we're dragging our leg behind our behind us, then we'll have back surgery. All right. And I'm right down the hall. Till then, I want to be poked with every needle impossible till I leak every time I drink. Well, and you know, I, I used to say that to patients as well. I think in, in, in the neck, I think that's actually wrong. I think if you require any significant treatment and have continued pain, the neck is a whole new animal. Cervical disc replacement is incredible. It's now my favorite procedure I do. It used to be lumbar microdisectomy or lumbar microdecompression because the patients did so well. And spine surgery patients postoperatively historically have not done well. Mine, mine do very well, but I think it has to do with my approach to all the soft tissues. But in the neck, we used to really put people off as long as possible because a fusion was almost a death sentence for adjacent level and, and more problems. And the patients did okay, but I, I never felt like they did great with cervical fusion. Cervical disc replacement now allows us to step in earlier, earlier with surgical intervention and patients do very well. Now, if you get a shot and you have great relief, obviously we're not operating. But if you're still having continued pain and problems and, and pain management uh, isn't getting you where you need to be, I'm way more aggressive with disc replacement than I ever was with fusion. Well, it's now time for our favorite. This is definitely my favorite part. Well, besides learning all about you. <laughs> it's time for getting hammered with Dr. Reeves.
So, Dr. Reeves, <laughs> you're not familiar with this. And this, we are probably the only people that have ever been hammered with Dr. Reeves. Probably so. I'll just throw that out there. Okay. So, Dr. Reeves, getting hammered. Getting hammered is Dr. Herford and I's favorite portion of the podcast. And it's something you don't know about probably yet. Five questions. These are top of mind answers. These are not, these are, we, we are not looking for you to deeply dig into your deepest reaches of your brain and answer these. These are a kind of a Rorschach's test of, uh, of questions, if you will. Are you ready to get hammered, Dr. Reeves? Hey, look at his face. <laughs> He's like, uh-oh. This could be dangerous. All right. Question number one. What is the most bizarre thing you have ever witnessed someone else do? That you can say on a podcast with Dr. Trish and Jeff and everybody else who might listen to this. Most bizarre thing I've ever seen someone do. Saw an orthopedic surgeon knock out his front teeth trying to remove a femoral component. That's the leg bone. Yep. Blue cross room. <laughs> femoral implant. Slap hammer uh, huh. came off and... The other resident that was supposed to be holding it down wasn't holding it down enough. And uh, this particular resident's like my twin, except a little bit bigger. And uh, slap hammer, I don't know, it's probably a five-pound weight. Smacked him right in the face. He shot across the room. Had to go have... His teeth go into the wound. No, no, because he flew away from the wound all the way to the edge of the room. And then had to go have uh, dental implants. So he had a flipper for a while. So we made fun of him for his flipper. He never liked the resident that didn't hold the slap hammer down properly. Do you want to share this doctor's name so we can? No, I'm just teasing. (laughs) I'll introduce you sometime. He doesn't live here. He lives in Michigan. Question number two. If you could go to any concert right now, who would you go see? Kind of digging Post Malone right now. So Good answer. Post Malone. I, I have a very eclectic music. I listen to just about everything. Um, Post Malone probably right now. That's why you have all those tattoos? Yes. That's why I have the face tats hidden by the beard. Question number three. Do you believe in the paranormal or have you had any paranormal experiences? I don't know if I believe or disbelieve paranormal. Uh, I've been to the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs, Arkansas and did the tour there and there were all kinds of people taking pictures, showing orbs, but uh, I, I didn't really see anything myself. Maybe I didn't have enough. Maybe I wasn't hammered enough for that to happen. Jeff will never go there. Oh, it's a very interesting. The Crescent Hotel was a, it was a medical center, so to speak, where a doctor, I'm not even certain he was medically trained, called himself doctor. You know, they felt the healing powers of water you know, springs were a big thing back in the, what, 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt. Right. And so that's the origin of that area. And they would take people in and uh, tell them that they were getting better, um, tell their family they were getting better so they'd continue to send money. But I'm not certain uh, anyone really got over their tuberculosis just from well water. So they say it's haunted. I don't like creepy things like that. You would just meet ghosts that were coughing. So it wouldn't be that scary. (laughs) (laughs) Question four. What is one of the best jokes you know by memory? Oh, I'm not good at jokes. Uh, Gosh. 
Hmm. I can only remember one joke. Fourth grade is so dirty and nasty. I'll never repeat it. I did share it with my son one time. Hey, you understand the irony of what you just said. He's so proud. I know such a dirty joke, it was, but I, I shared learned, it with my son one. I, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I learned it in fourth grade. It's the only joke that's ever stuck with me. You have nothing. I caught me off guard with the joke. I went to the, I went to this zoo the other day. It only had one dog in it. It was a shit zoo. <laughs> That's a good one, Jeff. That's a good one. I had an old partner that uh, told one-liners constantly, but they were all inappropriate. Those are my favorite. That's my partner over here. My orthopedic surgeon in Branson, Missouri. Every time someone had a, a problem with him, they, he'd say, well, I need a new boat. So that was his line. I guess my favorite, my favorite one is, is when someone's waking up from spine surgery and it's a male and he's the appropriate age, I tell them while they're just waking up that the vasectomy reversal went perfect. <laughs> Most of the time I get a chuckle. Occasionally I get bright eyes. <laughs> they wake up fast. Yeah. Question number five. If you could be any animal, what would you be? This is a famous question. This is. We were going to retire this question because there are some crazy answers out there that make me really laugh. Mm. I think I'd just be a grizzly bear. I think that's a perfect answer. Yeah. Top predator. Actually, top predator. that's good. Herford and I Herford and I love to do a deep uh, analyzation of that answer. We really kind of dissect it, usually off mic. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Why, why a grizzly bear though? I, they're large. I'm not a small man. Um, I'm not that big, but I'm not a small man. Okay. You're, he's 83 and he weighs 425 pounds is the visual we've given here. <laughs> he is not. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Reeves, you're what? Six, one, yep. six, two. Yep. And he's not 400 no. pounds, no. Probably under 200. Under 200. I'm 250. What yeah. Are you doing this 10? <laughs> No, I didn't want to get the wrong answer. Over here? <laughs> My God. Swipe right. How do you know that, Jeff? How do you He's know got, that? <laughs> He's got silver fox, salt oh, pepper hair, ladies. In Beverly Hills. He's educated. They did call me Dr. 90210 yes. in Branson for a while. Oh, you should never share that stuff with us because you know where that's going. And I have taken care of a few pseudo celebrities. Well, actually quite ask, a few celebrities. You know, you can't. From Beverly Hills, there was quite a few. And then Branson is the, you know, the Branson version of a celebrity. I'm just thinking of Tammy Faye and that it wasn't. Did you take care of, uh, which Brady is it that lives? <laughs> no, I never, I never saw him. I was gone from there by the time he was really. One of the Brady uh, bunch lives there. Yeah, what's his name? Brady. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. yeah he started some thing there. I don't know what he does, but. Well, we've enjoyed having Dr. Christopher Reeves. If they want to reach you, Dr. Reeves, if patients want to reach out, let's give them the phone number and then I'll give them the website. All right. Phone number is 636-777-8010. And on the web, it's moss-stl.com, Midwest Orthopedics and spine specialist. Well, Dr. Reeves, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. It's been a blast talking to you. Dr. Herford, the first double dose is in the can. I love it. Thanks. Until next time, this has been Double Dose Podcast with Dr. Trish and Jeff Todd.